Welcome to Little Minds, Big Thinkers. I'm your host, Tammy McMorrow. This is a podcast where we celebrate the magic and messiness of the elementary thinking classroom based on the work of your favorite of mine, Peter Lilliadal. In each episode, we'll hear and learn from those who are in the elementary trenches doing this important work. My hope is that this podcast offers you a front row seat to how building thinking classrooms by Peter Lilliadal is liberating our youngest mathematicians to think all over the world. Today, I get to talk to Allison Fox Mazzola, who is a K-8 math coach in California, and she knows her stuff. We talk about the eight mathematical practices and how they mesh with the thinking classroom. It's a beautiful marriage of two wonderful things. I was so inspired after this conversation. I know you will be too. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Allison, to this little podcast of mine that's now so lucky to have you here with it. Thank you for coming and talking to me today. Thank you for having me. I love talking about math. So any opportunity to talk about math some more is a great day in my book. Oh, agreed. I totally agree. I could talk about this stuff all day long. And sometimes I actually kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so go ahead and share with us a little bit about who you are as an educator and just a human in general. Sounds good. So um, I'm a former second grade teacher, but what I'm doing now is I'm currently a K-8 math coach, but my math coaching job is different than most because I work with a lot of different districts and schools rather than just one place. Um, Each school has, you know, different goals, different leadership, different vision for moving forward. Um, So I'm juggling a lot of balls all of the time. Um, It's really challenging, but I love that I get to work in so many different contexts because I gather ideas from one place that might help me somewhere else or one school's going in a different direction and that's intriguing and I can use that somewhere else. So I, I find it really fun um, to just see so many different ways of implementing math. Um, I also have a website for parents and for teachers to learn more about the math that we do with kids. And I also have online courses for parents because one of the biggest questions that I get from teachers is how are we going to bring parents along on this journey? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, that's something I can help with. And so I started this website and I just add stuff, blog posts, whatever, um, just ideas so that it gives teachers a place where they don't have to spend all their time explaining. They can just say, here's a post, read it. (laughs) So I was trying to help teachers out by taking off some of the load for them. Oh, yeah, we definitely appreciate that. Yeah. You're right. Like parents do want to know what can we do at home? And sometimes we don't have the time or we don't necessarily have all the right words or we have too many words. Yes. And when we can just send them to a place like what you're providing, it's a great resource. Yeah, that was that was my hope. I know teachers are so busy. There isn't enough time. So I just thought, well, maybe I can help um, trim that down with this little piece of assistance. And where are you located? So I live just south of San Francisco and um, mostly work with schools in the Bay Area, but I have worked with schools all over the country. Well, I am familiar with you partially because I watched one of your PD sessions when you presented at the Make Math Moments Virtual Math Summit, and you were talking about how do we communicate with parents? And I was very impressed. You had some great tips, like one of my favorites, which is very similar to what we're going to talk about very soon, is that you were saying when communicating with parents about the good things that are going on in your math class, use specifically the math practices that their Mm -hmm. children are using. I was like, oh, brilliant. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I'm so excited for us to talk about those today because I think they're so present in the building thinking classroom, but in in any classroom. And I just think that teachers and parents talk a lot about skills and think about, oh, can a kid do this skill? Can a kid do this skill? But there's this whole other piece of doing math that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. So you and I get to talk about it today. (laughs) 
Well, before we get there, I have to hold this back a little bit because I want to start with celebration. One of my favorite quotes is until further notice, celebrate everything. And I feel like today I need to I need to pause and celebrate a little bit. So I'm going to give you an opportunity as well. You can celebrate anything little, big, education related, totally off the education topic, whatever you want. What do you want to celebrate? Oh, that sounds great. Um, I am a little bit superstitious about New Year's Day, and I feel like we need to start off the new year doing, um, the, the quote is, um, start out as you mean to go on. So we need to do something in the first week of the year that we want to keep doing for the whole year and sort of setting our intention for the year. Yeah. So on New Year's Day, I got to do a big bike ride with my family. And just this morning before I logged on to see you, I just did a big hike in San Francisco and went down to Chrissy Field and saw the Golden Gate Bridge and the and um, Alcatraz and the Bay. And it was just an amazing way to start the day. So um, I'm celebrating all the fun outdoor things we get to do here and I've just been having a lot of fun this week oh I would love to go on a hike like that that sounds lovely I um I'm enjoying some snow outside so it's not hiking weather right now but I do love a good a good hike I would like to celebrate uh well I went back to school this week we're back on Thursday and Friday and by the end of Friday I was like oh boy I need to <laughs> reflect a little bit but um, one of the things I'd like to celebrate, which I haven't been vocal about, but it's going to be out there now. I was nominated for the Pamst Award. I don't know of this, but this sounds exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. It's um, the Presidential Awards for Excellence in Mathematics and Science Teaching. Wow. Wow. Very, very <clears throat> highly underqualified. <laughs> to phrase it like I don't know if I feel like I really deserve this award but today I am finishing all my parts it's quite a process to apply for it and I need to submit my um video my lesson video and then my part is done and right. I'll on some letters of recommendation and that's it and I'm good to go I'm like phew so I'm celebrating that right now well, congrats, Tammy. That's really exciting and well-deserved because I know in our Facebook group, you have been such a leader and I've learned so much from, I mean, you just read so widely and listen to podcasts and you're always sharing something about teaching math that I haven't considered. And I really appreciate that. So it doesn't surprise me you've been nominated. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're the first person out there that I've really shared it with. So it's an honor to kind of be a little vulnerable right now and share with <laughs> Thank you for celebrating with me. Yeah. So speaking of being, being vulnerable, we're going to move to the eight mathematical practices. And I have a confession to make. It's only been in the last couple of years that I feel like I've gotten a better handle on the practices. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, this is year 30 for me. So I feel kind of guilty saying that on a math podcast. But Prior to the thinking classroom, like they felt a bit like out of reach for me in some yeah. respect. And I agreed with them. I'm like, I'm game. These sound great. This is what I want. But I didn't quite know how to get there. Right. And so Peter's work, Peter Liliadal's work became my bridge. It was how, uh, it was my how to get there. And then once I got into the thick of the, the building thinking classroom, I realized how much the practices are just embedded with it. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like Peter's work brought a lot of clarity to the practices. Mm -hmm. So that's my kind of vulnerable. <sighs> this is where I've been with the mathematical practices. Now I am so excited to hear what you have to say and learn from you and your insights. Very cool. Well, I remember when I was teaching second grade, we did some work with um, Lu the Lucy Calkins program, and she had a quote in there of, um, we want kids to live the writerly life. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the math practices, I thought, this is how we live a mathematical life. Yeah. Like before this, we didn't really have a roadmap. Like what do mathematicians do? If you ask parents that, a lot of people don't have an idea. I mean, I personally don't know any mathematicians. I know a lot of math teachers, but not mathematicians. And so I think it's kind of 
unknown to us, a lot of people know how to like write in a journal or write an essay or something like that. Like that feels more familiar, but what do mathematicians do? So I was really excited when I saw the standards for mathematical practice because they spelled it out for us. And they said, here are eight things mathematicians do. And these eight things we're going to have as standards for kindergarten all the way to 12th graders, which I really like because you can keep refining year after year after year. You know what six-year-olds can do is going to be very different from what 16-year-olds can do. Um, So that was also exciting to me that we had something we could work on over time. The other piece that really excites me about the math practices is that Historically, traditionally in math classrooms, the, f- the kids who are the fastest are perceived to be the best at math. Yeah. But I really love the math practices because you can be seen as being really strong at math if you can make great models. Or what if you see patterns that somebody else doesn't see? Or what if you're really great at explaining your thinking? And so I think it broadens our definition in such a big way as to who is good at math, and it invites everyone in our classrooms to be good at something. Mm -hmm. And I think part of our job as teachers is to call it out and welcome that into the classroom. Like perhaps a kid got the wrong answer for something, but they made this amazing sketch. And so look, I can highlight that in the classroom and really celebrate that they did that. Um, Joe Bowler has um, some wording about Oh, I'm going to forget exactly what it is, but something about like assigning expertise. And so as a teacher, if I call out like, oh, that was a really terrific explanation. I love how you shared your thinking about that. Right. Or, whoa, that pattern that you found, I didn't even think about that, you know. And so now a lot of people are good at math in our classroom. And I think every kid is good at at least one of the math practices, if not many of them. And every kid has at least one that they are improving at. And since I live in Silicon Valley, we we are a fairly competitive community here. <laughs> We're always trying to be innovative and try new things and achieve stuff. So, um, you know, our parents are fairly competitive and so our kids are fairly competitive. But what I really like about the math practices is it completely shifts the narrative about um, this competition. Like when parents start thinking about the math practices, they can't say, like no one's going to say, oh, Allison is so much better at finding patterns than Tammy is. Like you can't really compare those, right? Or Tammy's really great at explaining her thinking and she does it better than Allison explains her thinking. Like it's not head-to-head comparison, right? Whereas parents can very easily say, my kid knows all of their multiplication facts, right? Mm -hmm. That's like head-to-head competition. So when we shift and start talking about the math practices, I think it just takes away a lot of that competitive energy. And the other thing I really love about the math practices is I actually believe these are life practices. Mm-hmm. Like math practice one is make sense of problems and persevere in solving them. I'm thinking about the new year and like all the goals people have set for the new year. And it's going to take perseverance to achieve those goals, right? It's a math practice, but it's a life practice. We need to persevere. Um, And then another one, construct viable arguments and critique the reasoning of others. You know, our country has had a lot of pain points in the past recent years about people having different points of view. And not necessarily being able to talk about that with each other. So I love that math practice because it doesn't say we have to agree. It just says that we need to be able to explain our side and listen respectfully to somebody else explaining their side. That's a life practice. It's a math practice, but it's a life practice. And so to me, these are so valuable because we're teaching math, but we're also teaching really important skills for existing in our world. Yeah. We're teaching humans. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you see these playing out in the thinking classroom? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when I, I found the math practices first, then I came to the um, building thinking classrooms book a little bit after that, but Every chapter that I read, I thought, oh, well, this is this math practice and this is that math practice. And I just feel kind of like you said, with the bridge, like this gave us the vehicle 
for implementing so many of these math practices in the classroom. And in a way, I think, you know, Lilia Dahl researched what was really good um, teaching and also the authors of the math practices researched and spent a lot of time in other countries, other classrooms, figuring out what is good in math education. So it doesn't surprise me that these two come together. These two research based pieces come together and say, yes. These are things that make good teaching. These are things that lead to success. But it kind of does surprise me because um, in the Building Thinking Classrooms book, he doesn't mention the math practices at all, but they're there. They're like, they're totally there. They're just not explicitly stated. So let me give a couple of examples. So um, Lilia Dahl talks a lot about like what types of tasks we choose in the classroom. And he talks about um, what do we do when we don't know what to do? And we have to give tasks that cause kids to think. Well, that's inviting perseverance. Mm-hmm. You have There would be no point in giving a task that was just, you know, three plus five to second graders because it, they wouldn't have to persevere with that. So he wants us to choose tasks at which kids need to persevere. Yes. Another piece that um, really just I, I couldn't stop thinking about this one was his idea of having the kids work in the groups at the boards. It involves like seven of the math practices, I think. <laughs> Because we need to be able, first, we're working on the task, right? Whatever task, it's some task that we need to persevere at. We need to be able to construct a viable argument because we need to explain to our group, especially if we only have the one marker, you know, we need to explain to our classmates what we're thinking and then listen to their ideas. And maybe we'll erase something and change what we've written on the board. But we need to have that conversation. You can't just sit there and not talk about math when you're in those groups. Right. Um, He's also asking um, us to model because on the boards, so often we need to model what we're thinking, whether we're drawing unifix cubes or teddy bears or coins or whatever we're doing, you know, there we are modeling the mathematics. Mm -hmm. And then when we think about thin slicing, um, thin slicing, I think is all about math practices seven and eight, because we need to look for and make use of the structure. So like, what am I seeing is going on here in the math? Mm-hmm. And then let me take that to the next problem. And then me, let me apply that to the next problem. And each problem gets a little bit more challenging, but you're still applying the idea from the first problem. And you're it's, it's amping up a little bit each step, but you're still looking for what is the big idea that's carrying through here that I'm continuing to do. I, I appreciate your description of number seven, because that is one that for me is kind of like, ah. How, what is that? <laughs> exactly. Totally. I think that, and that went through me off when I first started thinking about these seven and eight. I think they're kind of like cousin math practices. They're really related to each other. And it's taken me a long time to back them to tell you the truth. But as I understand it now, math practice seven is about looking for making use of structure within a problem. And then math practice eight is, okay, now how can I apply that to repeated problems? Um, I'll share a little example that was really fun for me. I was working with a third grader and we did, we built an array for three times four. And then a little bit later, we built an array for four times three. And she, she remembered and she looked at me, she said, wait, I think these have the same area. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think they do. Let's cut it out. So we got some grid paper um, and we cut out the grid paper and laid it on top. And sure enough, you know, they do have the same area. And she got so excited. She said, what if we did five times six and then six times five? And I said, let's try it. Let's go for it. And so we did five times six, cut it out, six times five, put it on top. Sure enough, it matched up. And then she said, okay, well, what if we skipped a number? Like, what if we did four times six, skipping the five, right? And so then if we have four times six and six times four, and to me, that was just the embodiment of these two math practices because she was she tr- she was looking for a structure. She thought she had found one. This three times four, it's the same as four times three. And then she wanted to apply it to a bunch of other problems to see if the structure held. And, you know, as adults, we're like, well, of course, three times four is equal to four times three. But that's our adult brain. We have to go back to being eight years old, you know, and it's a whole discovery of, oh, my gosh, these have the same area. 
Yeah, that's a great example of six or seven and eight. So I appreciate you um, offering that. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that I think really connects to the building thinking classrooms is the use of um, the vertical non-permanent surfaces and also the way we arrange the furniture because um, Lily Adele really talks about encouraging taking risks. Like when a classroom is set up the way it's always in a traditional classroom, it's always been set up. You have a your mindset on this is what's going to happen in this classroom, right? And you think it's going to be this way, the numbers will be different, the problem will be different, but it's kind of going to be exactly what it's always been, right? But when you walk in and the classroom is totally different and you can't find the front and now I have to stand at this whiteboard and I've never done math standing up, like (laughs) it just feels like you're off balance, right? In a good way, but because it's so different. And Math Practice 5 says, use appropriate tools strategically. And I think that Math Practice really encourages students to take risks, like to try something and then try something else. And like, think about what is the best way to go about this problem? Like I used Unifix cubes, but now I'm working up into 67. That's a lot of Unifix cubes. Like maybe I should have chosen a different tool to solve this problem. And so it is all about like shaking it up and just like, trying something and seeing what happens. Um, And in the Building Thinking Classrooms book, he even talks about, there's one of those metrics in the chapter on the vertical non-permanent surfaces where he looks at the non-linearity of the work. I don't know if you remember that chart. Um, Yes, yes. And I think that is Math Practice 5 because it's about like we tried the solution, it didn't work. So we went this direction and maybe that didn't work. So we went that direction. And so that's what I think he's, he calls it nonlinearity of work. I'm thinking about it as Math Practice 5, but I think we're talking about the same thing. Well, I have a question about the tools because you were talking about we're using this tool and then we're figuring out that tool doesn't work for this particular problem. Yeah. I, I have a place in my room where all the tools are and they can go at what they need. And then I've seen in some classrooms where they actually have toolkits that are board. And my, my question for you is like, how do I know which tools to put in that toolkit? If I'm Mm. going to do that, because I don't want to, narrow their options and force them into a tool that maybe they don't get the opportunity to think, you know, think critically about. Right. Is it better to have just a place where they go get what they need, or is it better to have tools at each place? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I totally know what you're saying. And that's a great question. So when I taught second grade, I had this bookcase and I had, you know, those plastic shoe boxes. So I had um, plastic shoe boxes, like one for um, base 10 blocks, one for Unifix. Well, actually I had five because I had one for each table of base 10 blocks, one for each table of Unifix cubes and so on and so forth. And when people would say, what is your math curriculum? I would gesture to this bookshelf (laughs) and say, this is my math curriculum. Like it was all so manipulative base. Yes. And that, that definitely worked. But I've thought a lot more. I've been watching. I spend time in lots of different classrooms. And what I've noticed is that in most classrooms, if kids have to stand up and walk to get a tool, they most likely won't. Okay. Because it's too embarrassing or they don't want to be seen as the one kid who needs that thing, whatever it is. Um, So that I get that. That makes sense to me. I think that's also partially due to age, you know, like a fifth grader is not going to walk across the room, but a second grader might, you know, and it seemed to work in my classroom. Kids did use lots of different tools. Um, But then I've seen teachers have individual toolkits, like each kid gets like a pencil pouch with tools in there. But again, I find that just crazy making because if you say like every kid has to have 20 unifix cubes but then one kid only has 19 and then like everything's disrupted because I can't (laughs) find the 20th unifix cube oh my gosh I can't take it it's too much I I just can't deal (laughs) so my my favorite method lately has been having like a like a caddy or something in the center of the table for all those kids at that table we don't count the unifix cubes there's just like a pile of Unifix cubes in there. There's a pile of base 10 blocks. There's a pile of pattern blocks. And then having that caddy on the table, kids will reach in there 
It's not a public display if I'm walking. I'm the only kid walking across the room to get the base 10 box, right? It's right on the table. So they will reach in there. And I like to have, like, I don't pick for this lesson. This needs to be in the caddy. Like, I just have a big collection of stuff in that caddy. And then we just use whatever's there. So in the thinking classroom at the, what I call their thinking boards, there would be one for each. You could take the caddy to the boards and use them there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's maybe part of my questioning is then just the logistics of it. Like how much of each or like, yeah. how does this caddy hold exactly what they need to yeah. with any task we're going to do without limiting them and forcing them into a certain tool? Yeah. 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 Well, I could definitely see for particular tasks, like you might just, we're all going to use Unifix cubes for this, right? Or these caddies only hold so many of this and we're all going to need a lot more of these. Um, but I think there are only some problems and tasks that really lend themselves to particular models, you know, and other tasks are really open-ended and we could do anything with it and just use lots of different tools to get there. Okay. Well, that's been on my list of things to do for a while. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that they have uh, immediate access to those tools and they, they do walk and get what they need, but yeah. if I'm sitting there right in front of them, then I can see them accessing them more often. Well, and you also have the little ones. You have first and second graders. So yeah. I can see that they're less worried about what that looks like. Yeah. Um, but definitely for the older ones, they're not going to make that journey across the room. <laughs> well, thank you for answering that question because that's been on my mind for a while. Sure, sure. Yeah. I was thinking also about um, thinking about math practices seven and eight. And um, Lily Adele talks about when to give the task and where to give the task. And he talks a lot about how we need to get kids going at the beginning of the lesson, right? In those first five minutes. I think that's like one of my favorite things from the book <laughs> is because when I was in school, the first five minutes, we were always correcting the homework from last <laughs> night and it was like death. I already know I'm going to hate this class because I'm bored at minute three, you know? <laughs> he talks to us about not only giving that task in the first couple of minutes of class, but also having kids stand when he gives it, you know? And I think that um, gives kids the opportunity to think about, okay, what is the structure here? What's going on? What do I need to do? What connections am I looking for? And we're not just thinking about how do I do problem one? Like I'm taking in the whole task and looking for how this connects to all the things and maybe looking for how it connected to what we did yesterday or last week or whatever. So it gives, it actually sets aside a moment in class sort of, for us to engage in math practices seven and eight. Like, it's not explicit, but it's it's kind of there because you just sort of take the task in before you get dive in and start working. It's like a pause before we actually start the work. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on those people like myself who I'm a more of a slow processor and mm -hmm. I time to think? There's yeah. not individual time to think when when we're in the thinking classroom necessarily we give the task and then boom right 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 well i like you need a couple minutes to sort of think <laughs> about what's going on and i've experienced the thinking classroom as an adult and um like in workshops and things and i know for myself like i might not be the first person to talk or share an idea or whatever yeah. but once i see my um partners start to think about something, then I'm there. So yeah. I'll take those couple of minutes as my partners are like, you know, getting in there and starting to mark up a bunch of stuff. And then I'm ready to dive in. So I think the time is, is there, but it's not, again, it's not explicit. It's just sort of go to your board with your team and you don't have to be the first person to write something. You don't have to be the first person to say something, you know, because they're already going. So it kind of feels like the whole thing is starting to take off, even if you haven't done anything yet. And the, the challenge to giving more time is that there are kids who are going to know the, they're going to have the answer. It's true. 
into the board and then off they go and then their buddy is left wondering what's going on here. Yes, yes. But I think that speaks to the the tasks that we choose, right? Because so often the tasks that we choose don't you you can't see the answer right away. I was listening to um Alicia Burdess, I heard her at the Make Math Moment Summit, and then I heard your interview with her, and she was talking about that problem about the pigs and the, the big bad wolf, and the, you know, you open every third door, and you open every fourth door, and whatever, and honestly, frankly, I haven't sat down to do this problem myself, but I still cannot envision this. And she said, you know, you could go down to 10. And so I was driving while I was listening to your podcast and I was trying to picture, okay, if I only had 10 and then every other one, I still haven't figured that one out. So I know I just need to sit down and do it, but I, it, I think it's very unlikely that the kids see that one right away. Totally. Yeah. By the way, for that one, circular counters, like the two colored counters are. Yeah. I need to do it. I just need to set aside time to sit down and do it. Absolutely. And I need to do it before I do it with kids so that I know what to expect, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did it with her over the summer and mm-hmm. she actually gave us the counters and like, use these. That was a, that was a um, recommendation. Like she just yeah. us to do it as adults. And when we use the counters, it made so much more sense. Yes. Yes. Prior to that, I did a locker variation of that same task. And right. And I don't know how many months ago with adults and we didn't have counters and my head. Yeah. Yeah. I also think to your earlier question about like the caddies with the math manipulatives, that's one of those tasks where I wouldn't let the kids take the caddy and other manipulatives because the task is so big already. That if someone gets off on the wrong foot and starts using pattern blocks or something, like we're never going to get to the end of this. That's a good so, Yeah. So I think there are times where, you, where she, you just need to do what she said. Use yeah. these. Yeah. <laughs> so that we, we don't spend 15 minutes in a bad direction, you know? Yeah. And then find a way on your board to represent what you learned and what you did. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Many of those tasks that she gave you um, in the podcast, I thought were um, there. She calls them big, beautiful problems and they are. But I was thinking a lot about stamina and like how to keep going with these problems because that it's a perseverance piece again. Right. Like how little kids they're building their perseverance, but they only have so much. And like, where would our stopping point be? Or how would I make this a little more bite-sized so that we can persevere, but not persevere to the point of frustration, you know? And that also um, comes into when I cut things off and go to consolidation. Yes. So stopping when the energy is still high. Yes. That they have something left in the tank to talk about and think about later. Well, and honestly, I do that with adults too. When I'm doing like PD for a group of teachers or something, we mostly we don't have time, but also I just want to stop when people are having that excitement of this is really cool. I just did this a week ago and the teachers walked away from the boards and they were like, that was so fun. We didn't find the answer. Like that wasn't the point. The point was just doing some great thinking together, you know? And I think that's such a big shift in our thinking as teachers and mathematicians is that the answer is not always the point or the goal, right? Right. And in fact, a teacher recently asked in our Facebook group about, um, am I supposed to make sure that there are scaffolds in place in order for by the end of this task that everyone reaches the answer? Yes. That's a valid question. I appreciate the you know, the effort, but I'm like, nope. (laughs) Right, right. No, absolutely. The point was the conversation. The point was engaging and thinking. I mean, thinking, that's really what we were trying to do. Did you do some good thinking? Yeah. I always used to ask my second grader or tell my second graders, the goal of this time is to really do some good thinking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether you finish one worksheet page or you finish four of them or whatever, doesn't matter. We just want to do some really good thinking because everyone moves at a different speed. Oh, I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. So I could keep talking about each of the um, steps in the building thinking classroom and the math practices forever, but <laughs> perhaps you have another question for me. I, I could go on and on about consolidation and oh, cool. um, also about answering <laughs> questions. 
This is great. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. All right. Um, well, I was thinking also Lily et al. talks about how we answer questions in the thinking classroom. And to me, because teachers aren't giving the answers right away, which when you start this with a class that's so used to perhaps from many years of being in school, when you start building a thinking classroom and the teacher won't give the answer right away, the kids have to adopt an entirely different way of approaching the math, right? Because they're just, just, I've had kids just come up to me and just crumple at my feet. Just <laughs> tell me the answer, you know? <laughs> and so I think when we change how we answer the questions and um, think about stop thinking questions, you know, think about are these just proximity questions, um, then kids have to build more perseverance, right? And they have to take those risks because if you don't have a plan, if you don't see it, you need to get a plan and it may not work, but you need to get a plan so you can move forward and then you can get a different plan and so on and so forth. So that was that math practice five we were talking about, like being strategic. And and maybe you can't be strategic until you've tried a few other things and then you can get to the strategy piece, right? Um, but then also math practice three, construct viable arguments and critique the reasoning of others. Like we're not actually going to figure this out with the teacher's help because the teacher's not going to tell us what to do. So the only thing we have is to start talking to each other and <laughs> constructing viable arguments and listening to each other and thinking about and considering each other's ideas like that's what we have to do we have to just by the whole nature of it we have to do these math practices there's no other way yeah and at my level with my first and second graders they haven't been really institutionalized mm -hmm. exactly to to what the way that some maybe fourth or fifth graders have right. they're so when I when we don't get to the answer they're more okay with that I think I would completely agree with you, but I would say that the younger ones often do rely on adults more. They're, you know, they're less independent yes. can be, for the most part, and they're used to asking adults for help. And so, I mean, he even says in the book, like for the older kids, you, you don't answer the question, but for the younger kids, you have to smile and nod. Like I've heard you like little kids need that because they're expecting the adults to help. And so I do think that they have even more dependence on teacher helping maybe, you know, um, let's see, maybe that they, they, at least in my experience, they get past that pretty fast though. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. It takes very long for them to figure out, oh, she's not going to give us the answer and, or she's. Yes all our questions. Yeah, we're in this together. Let's just keep going. Totally, totally. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because to your point, they haven't been in school long enough to have a particular script in mind. So if you say, well, actually, we're using this script, they will go, okay, let's do it this way. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the last piece that I thought we could talk about was maybe about consolidation, because I think of the math practices, I was talking earlier about how it gives us a way for everyone to be a mathematician in the classroom and for everyone to have a strength in math in the classroom, right? And so in some lessons, the goal of the lesson is maybe to work on modeling or the goal of the lesson is to attend to precision. I know in our Facebook group, a number of times people have posted, and I think you've posted one of these, like our goal was to figure out how to represent our thinking on the boards, right? So I think that's about attending to precision. We need to create something that models what we created with our manipulatives or whatever. And so when we're thinking about consolidation, yes, definitely sometimes is about how do we get the math and how do we get here? But I think sometimes it can also be about, let's just talk about how you work carefully. Like how do you attend to precision? How do you label things? Yes. That's really big for first and second grade. Yes. Like how do you label stuff? How do you model something if you've drawn it this cracks me up when second graders are sketching their base 10 blocks, right? And they want to draw every single line on that flat to get the 100 lines. No, we're not going to draw all the lines. It's going to take forever. 
So how do you effectively represent that on the board, right? Or if you give a task, I know you've given a number of money tasks and coins and things, right? So we have this context, but then what does that look like mathematically? Like what is going on? I remember in one of the tasks that you used, you said the kids were counting the number of coins rather than the value of the coins, right? Yeah, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And so how do we model that? Like if it's a nickel, should we put a five on it? Or like, how are we going to model this so that we can make sense of it? I think the other thing that we can do in consolidation is highlight things like looking for patterns, you know, which one group might have seen a particular pattern and carried it through or um, often when kids set up a table like that helps us look for patterns and things like that. So consolidation in my mind, I haven't asked Lily Adal about this yet, (laughs) but in my mind, it can absolutely be about the math. Definitely. And sometimes we really, that's where we're at. And we really want to emphasize the math. But I think sometimes we can also use it as a vehicle to talk about like, look at how these four different boards found patterns, but they were different patterns, Mm -hmm. right? But isn't that cool? Look at what they did. Or look at how these four different boards represented the money and what does it look like? And like a classic one that I often see is if we tell a story problem like about cats or something and some kids want to draw every single whisker, right? And all the the fur on the cat and whatever, like, no, we're doing math drawings. So you just need like, what is the point here that we have the legs? You can draw a circle with four legs, done, you know, or whatever, like. So I think the consolidation can be an opportunity to emphasize particular math practices in addition to being an opportunity to talk about the math. Mm. But we're going to have to ask Peter about that next time we see him. But that's how it goes in my mind. <laughs> well, I completely agree with you because last last summer I read the five practices in practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that encouraged me to really think about goals, like mm-hmm. a goal before a task because your goal is then going to help you pick the task and then anticipate responses and assessing questions and advancing questions. But also uh, the goal, like you're saying, is not always like they can perform this skill. Yeah. Sometimes it's for me, um, they um, mathematicians uh, use models that are clear and organized. Right. That's right. such a viable goal. And then when I come back to consolidation afterwards, like you said, that is the thing that I'm going to make a big deal out of. Yes. Let's, let's make sense of why this group organized it the way they did. Yes. Why did they write the numbers this way? Why did they circle this? Why did they that? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's one of those decisions we make in the moment based on the group of kids that we have and where they're at and what they need and what we saw on like recent assessments or whatever conversations that we've heard, like we have to just know what the group needs next. And you can pull that out of whatever task you're doing that day and then consolidate according to that. And maybe you have to do it for a week to get everybody really practiced at something. Um, But I think that's one of those fun moments as a teacher where you're like, okay, what, you know, what's our next job? I think of it a lot as like going to the gym, like, oh, I need to work on abs. I haven't done abs in a few weeks or, you know, I couldn't do those sit-ups or whatever. So we got to practice that. Let's work on it for a week and then we'll get stronger at it, you know? Yeah. So the idea of using our mathematical practices to um, establish goals for tasks, that is Yes, that's perfect. That's brilliant. I don't know why Lily Adal would disagree with that. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Great. I'm glad you agree with me on that one. (laughs) But I wanted to come back to something you mentioned in the beginning about um, talking to parents about the math practices and what I spoke about at that summit. And I really think when we start talking with parents about like, oh, your kid made this really great model or your kid did, um, you know, really participated in the board work today and they shared some great ideas or something. I think it just changes the whole way parents think about math, but also about their child. And it's so huge because if parents just think, well, my kid doesn't know their their threes multiplication facts, right? Or it takes them a little while to solve these problems or whatever. When we can say to a parent, your child is really good at this math practice, 
Wow. I mean, you just see parents start to glow. I have a kid who's really great at finding patterns. That's so awesome, you know, and it shifts how they see their kid. It shifts how they think about math. And so I think it's just this great opportunity for us to just look at something we're already doing a little bit differently and give parents and kids a gift of seeing kind of with different glasses on. And it's so beautiful to me when that happens. And when kids come in feeling so proud of like, yeah, I'm actually really good at this. There is something in math I'm really good at, you know, rather than just so-and-so is the fastest. I mean, when you think back to school, your own schooling and think about the kids who are good at math, who comes to mind? I mean, in my mind, it's still the kids who are the fastest. I can I can name them for you. I can tell you their whole name because I was so frustrated that they were so fast. <laughs> One of them. <laughs> yes, yes. But I do think I, you know, I had a lot of other strengths, but I didn't know that those things like counted, you know? And as teachers, we have to be very upfront with our students and normalize <laughs> the fact that being good at math isn't about being fast. Yes. And it's yes. not about getting the answer right away or the right answer right away. It's, yes. Yeah, I, I think we have to be very upfront with them. about. Yeah. That. I have um, in my classroom, the math practices are up, all eight of them. You know, like I have a poster for each one. They're up in my room. And I am very frequently pointing. We're using this one today. We're working on this one. Or I had one little boy say to me, oh, and he was very strong at math. He could calculate very well. But he said to me at one point, he said, Mrs. Mazzola, I don't know why you ever call on anyone else in the class because I know all the answers and I could just explain it and you don't need to call on anyone else. (laughs) So I'm sitting there thinking, Math practice three, construct viable arguments. First of all, you have to explain to us how you got the answer, right? But also critique the reasoning of others. If you're the only kid speaking in the class, that means you are never considering other people's viewpoints, right? And so in a moment like that, I'm able to point to the poster on the wall and say, you're right. Maybe you attend to precision and you're very good about getting the right answer. Careful. But this is a math practice you are working on. So these these posters are just, we're just constantly talking about them. And sometimes it's whole group, sometimes it's individually, but they become alive in the classroom, not just something static that's on the wall, but they become something that we're using. And in fact, I had them under the chalk tray because then kids can reach them. (laughs) If they're up too high, kids can't reach them. And so they don't see them, Mm -hmm. especially if you're short, if you're six, there's a lot of stuff over your head that you're not going to look at, you know? (laughs) So you're helping them redefine what a mathematician is. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have them in some kind of student friendly language? Then? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I actually have them from the Bridges Math Program, but I know you can find them in many other places. But the ones I have are from the Bridges Math Program, and they did put them into kid language. But I know you can find them out there. You don't have to use Bridges. To yeah, I need them. to do that. Yeah, yeah. I also think that what you're saying about the fact that we're redefining what it means to be good at math, it helps us teachers get away from the language of low? Yes. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with that more. And I think a building thinking classroom does that too. Like Lily Adele talks a lot about, you know, there's like teachers have asked, like, what do I do with, you know, kids who are behind? Or what do I do when this particular group of kids in the in a bigger class is behind? And he talks a lot about just put them in the groups and they will start thinking and shining in ways you didn't expect. Yeah. You know, it's when we're measuring through traditional methods, then we get the lows and highs. But when we're measuring and doing things in such a different kind of way, it shakes everything up and kids show up in completely different ways than they have at, at another time. Yeah. So we yeah. see them with a strength-based asset lens. Yes. And, yes. and then we, yeah, we can use these practices to really pinpoint their strengths. Yes. No, absolutely. I even emailed him at one point because um, I the school where I taught second grade was a school for gifted kids. And so I asked him, 
Um, like, how would you do building thinking classrooms differently for gifted, which was the term we were using then, which is not necessarily the term everyone's using now. And he wrote back and he said, Allison, I don't really think I would do anything differently, <laughs> which was reassuring to me because I didn't think so either. Like if you choose a good task, it's in the task, right? Then you maybe don't have to do anything differently. But he said, you know, try it and report back and let me know on what you're thinking. And so I think the the tasks that we choose and having the kids work at the boards inherently takes away the high and the low because we're just all coming at these complex problems and it's it's not necessarily about finding that right answer it's more about displaying these math practices as we go in the process and the conversation and looking for different approaches and things like that and so it is a very different conversation than highs and lows hmm. well is there anything else you want to say about the mathematical practices in the thinking classroom before we wrap this up I'm just really excited that you were eager to talk about these. I I work with a lot of teachers and there's a lot of people who haven't heard about them yet. I mean, they're right there yeah. in our standards. Right. Um, somehow some people haven't seen them. I don't know. Or we haven't put emphasis on them. Or I mean, it's very different districts, different schools. Some people have heard of them. But um, I think they are so important because... Yes, we are teaching math. Absolutely, we're teaching math. But as you said, we're teaching humans. Mm -hmm. And if we can teach kids through math, through all the things that we're doing, how to be better citizens of the world, I think that, I mean, like, I'm, I'm going to cry talking about it because <laughs> it's just so exciting to me. And it's such a big, important job, you know? Well, we are lucky to have you advocating for these practices in the thinking classroom. I have totally enjoyed this conversation. You've been so easy to talk to. I'm going to have to have you come back and talk <laughs> about some other things in the thinking classroom. And, and you've inspired me to, to take some steps that I haven't taken before. And I imagine that everyone else is thinking something very similar. So thank you so much for chatting with me today about the thinking. Thank you for having me, Tammy. It was really great to talk to you. And I can't wait to hear how um, your classroom shifts and changes as you start thinking about the math practices even more with the Building Thinking Classrooms. I look forward to our next conversation about it. And you know, I'll be posting on Facebook all this all right. <laughs> all right, take care. I just loved my conversation with Allison. She was so easy to talk to and so inspiring. I loved how she said, we want kids to live the mathematical life. Isn't that beautiful? And that the eight practices help broaden our definition of what it means to be good at math. It helps us assign expertise. Oh, I could just go on and on and on. If you would like to know more about Allison's work, please, please, please look in the podcast description. I'm going to add a link to her site because you need to go check her out. In time, in the famous words of Peter Lilliedal, no one ever died doing thinking classrooms. Just try it.